Hi, and welcome to Green Deal Big Deal, the podcast where we discuss Europe's green future. My name is Eva Ivashuk. And I am Linda Miderake. We are pleased to join you today from the offices of Ecologic Institute in Berlin. So, Linda, in this podcast, we dig deep into the different aspects of the European Green Deal, which is EU's flagship environmental and economic initiative. And I am very happy that you are joining me today as a guest co-host, because the topic that you work on is plastics policies. And we will be talking about how the European Green Deal approaches this complex and omnipresent environmental problem of plastics. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here today with you and I'm looking forward to our discussions. So ahead of recording this episode, we tried to do something a bit different and we actually asked our podcast listeners to send us their recordings and let us know what they think actually is the problem with plastics. Let's listen to what they had to say. For me, there is not the one problem with plastics, but in fact, there are many interlinked ones. So I actually find it hard to pick a single one. Of course, one key aspect is always the lacking biodegradability of the most types of plastic we are still using today. This means that plastic particles end up in nature with harmful consequences, not only for humans, but also for animals. And yeah, many of these consequences are still not fully known. And then there's also the global dimension to it. So plastic production and pollution perpetuate global inequalities. They're not because oftentimes the plastic consumed and thrown away in one country ends up off the coast of another country, maybe even at the other end of the world. This underlines that we not only need strong efforts by individual countries, but also we need a global plastic treaty as these problems um, yeah, can only be solved if all countries act together in a coordinated way and as soon as possible. I think that there are different reasons why plastic is a problem. We use plastic so much every day. It's in food packaging and in other stuff. And plastic does not dissolve. It gets smaller and smaller over the time. And then we have microplastic. And microplastic swimming in the sea. Fish are eating it. And it's not good for the animals. But also we have a health impact because of the uh, microplastic. And... Another problem is that the plastic we use got not recycled. It's only a few percent that got recycled. And so there's everywhere plastic in our environment. And it's bad for human, for the nature, for animals, for everyone. Hello, everyone. My name is Luban, and I'm a graduating high school senior from the country of North Macedonia. And today I would like to briefly talk about the problem of plastic pollution. Firstly, I want to acknowledge that this is a really prevalent issue of our times. Although there have been certain initiatives to reduce plastic pollution, like incentivizing recycling, as well as switching to more sustainable options, they have been proven to be very insignificant in some parts of the world. Coming from a developing country myself, I have had the experience that our country lacks the infrastructure as well as the incentive from the people to participate in such practices. Thus, I believe that education is very important in order for us to raise the incentive to participate in practices that reduce plastic pollution. Thanks to our listeners for these very interesting contributions. As we have heard, their main concern with plastics is the degree of plastic pollution in the environment and all the negative effects 
for animals, for ecosystems and natural habitats, but also for people and societies as a whole. I believe that they have pointed out very important aspects. First of all, I've heard the persistence of plastics, which is why tiny particles, the so-called microplastics, are found in our environment and they will be found there for hundreds and hundreds of years to come. Then we have heard about the lack of waste management and recycling infrastructure, at least in certain parts of the world, that make the problem with plastic waste much more pronounced. And I was also happy to hear about the global dimension of the whole plastics problem. Um, it was pointed out that existing inequalities can be amplified, and there was a call for a global plastics treaty from one of our listeners. I also want to highlight another dimension of the plastics problem that was not mentioned by our listeners, which is the overexploitation of resources, which is also linked to our existing linear economic system or mainly linear system. Today, we will talk about policies, but also business models and strategies that will move us further towards a circular plastics economy. And I'm very happy to do so together with you, Eva. Thank you very much, Linda, for this summary. As we can see, we have a lot to unpack if we are get to the bottom of the problem of plastic pollution and how the European Green Deal wants to address it. To help us investigate the topic, we have with us Frida Rubik, the coordinator of products and consumption topic at Institut für Ecologische Wirtschaftsforschung, the German Institute for Ecological Economy Research, and Jean-Pierre Schweitzer, Senior Policy Officer for Products and Circular Economy at the Brussels-based European Environmental Bureau. Frieder and Jean-Pierre, welcome to the podcast. Yes, good morning from my side. Hello, and uh, thanks for Ecologic for the invitation to join the podcast today. Excited to discuss this topic. Frieder, we just heard about a myriad of problems connected to plastics and plastic pollution. And I wanted to ask you, is plastic inherently bad? Do you think that we should get rid of all types of plastic? Oh, that's an interesting question, uh, and uh, the answer is not black and white, it's grey. If you look for the plastic consumption in Germany, for example, about 27-28% of the plastics used in Germany are used for packaging, about 22 are used for the building sector and 90% for the car sector, and there are some other interesting application areas like medical areas and so on. And if you look for these different application areas, it's obvious that in some of the areas, the use of plastic makes sense. For example, in the medical appliance area, where no alternatives exist. But in general, I would say plastics is bad if it's at the wrong places in the environment, for example, in the oceans or in the built environment. And plastics is bad uh, in areas where or for which better alternatives exist. So we have to look for these different application areas and then we have to think about if we should deal with the precautionary principle, that means to avoid where it is possible and to substitute plastics in the cases where other, from an ecological point of view, better alternatives exist. You pointed out that plastics are not inherently bad, but that we have to look at the specific applications and the specific uses of plastics. Jean-Pierre, what would be the consequences if we just decided not to address a plastics issue? I think a lot of your listeners already pointed to some good reasons why we need to do something about plastics. But I'd maybe add two more issues there. 
So the first thing is about the scale of the problem. So there was a very influential paper from 2017 from Roland Geyer and Jenna Jambeck, and they really stressed the global scale of the plastic and plastic waste and pollution crisis. So they explained that since the history of making polymers on this planet, there were about 8.3 billion tonnes of plastics being produced. This has continued to increase since they published their article. And around 6.3 billion tonnes of these had become waste. And a very small percentage, just 9%, had been recycled. The rest incinerated and released into the natural environment or put into landfills. This is really a huge amount of materials. And I think it's very hard to kind of put a picture on what the scale of this amount of materials is. And they even forecast going into the future, the amount of plastic either landfilled or released into the environment would reach 12 billion tonnes by 2050. So that's about the scale. The second point is really about the unknown risk. So more recently, this year, 2022, there was another paper released by lots of scientists, mostly from Sweden, working in the Stockholm Resilience Center. And they argued, I don't know if your listeners know about the planetary boundaries theory, but it's basically a concept which looks at different kinds of environmental risks and how they relate to different tipping points in terms of the earth system processes. They've looked at biodiversity, climate change, water use. And in this new paper, which came out this year, they argued for a ninth planetary boundary to be added called novel entities. And this was about new types of materials which human society were putting into the planet and they paid particular attention to plastics and they were arguing that the production and release of these new types of materials into the environment was bringing diverse risks many of which we didn't understand some of your listeners pointed to them already like uh, for example health risks but also risks to biodiversity and we would not be able to control these risks. And it relates a lot to what Frida said about the precautionary principle. How can we really assess what the risks are with plastics? So I think today we are in a situation where we've released so much plastic material into the environment. We understand some of the problems, some of the economic costs, the socioeconomic impacts and the environmental risks, but not all of them. But we are continuing to produce these materials and not successfully managing to control their release into the environment. So really, it's incredibly important that we try to do something about this. Thank you, Jean-Pierre. And for our listeners, we will link to the papers that Jean-Pierre has mentioned in the show notes. And if you would like to learn more about the planetary boundaries concept, we actually interviewed one of the authors of the concept in the first episode of the podcast. So we invite you to check this out if you would like to understand how the European Green Deal addresses the concept of planetary boundaries. So, Frida, we have heard about the huge scale of the plastics problem. Now we want to focus a bit more on the European Union. And I would like to know, in your opinion, which are the most pressing problems related to the plastics economy for us to address in Europe? I think most of the problems have already been introduced. In addition to that, of course, we use non-regenerative resources. We extract them for, in a lot of cases, application areas in which better alternatives exist. And we have another problem due to the 
explosion of the mineral oil prices and we are dependent on extraction at places uh, where non-democratic regimes exist. So we have a lot of problems linked to the extraction phase of the resources. We have problems with regards to microplastics. We have problems with regards to the waste, a small amount uh, of recycled plastic. We have littering problems. We have the health risk. We have the risk for the environment and so on. And I think these problems must be addressed by the European Union also in the Circular Economy Action Plan. And I think the approach the European Union has already been taken is a first step and additional steps are needed. Thank you, Frida, for already pointing to the Circular Economy Action Plan, which was published in 2020 and which is one of the main building blocks of the European Green Deal. So the topic of plastics is high on the political agenda in the EU. Jean-Pierre, what are the priorities of the Action Plan with regards to plastics and plastics packaging in particular? Yeah, I think it's maybe important to say there's been two circular economy action plans. So the first one was published in 2015. So not part of the European Green Deal, but it really started, I would say, uh, some of the legislative work on plastics. This included a lot of initiatives like increasing uh, recycling targets in the revision of waste legislation, but it also launched the plastic strategy, which then led into the single-use plastics directive, which has resulted in, for example, some of the restrictions on specific single-use plastics commonly found on European beaches, like straws, and also new initiatives on increasing the amount of recycled content in plastic bottles. So there was a lot of work on plastics already happening before the European Green Deal. But in March 2020, the second Circular Economy Action Plan was launched. And it also continues in this work to address some of the problematic aspects of plastics. So I just point out a few of the initiatives in the action plan. So one, which is the area where I'm really uh, focused on in my work, is the revision of the Packaging and Packaging Waste Directive. It's a bit of a mouthful, the name of this legislation. Um, but really, this is the directive which sets the rules to put packaging on the European market. One thing we are really interested in is we are expecting in this revision of the legislation for the EU to set some packaging reuse targets. So Up until now, we don't have any reuse targets, and we think reuse is one of the most promising areas in terms of reducing the environmental impacts from plastics. There is also some initiative to restrict microplastics. I think it's a topic we'll come on to a bit later in the podcast, and also bioplastics, something else I'm sure we're, we're going to talk about. But also not just packaging, there are initiatives on other sectors of the economy. So for example, textiles, it's a very important sector for plastics because most of the textiles we use today are actually made from plastics, from polyester, but also other sectors like electronics and buildings, which are expecting to have measures to kind of reduce resource use. Uh, so lots happening in relation to plastics in the new Circular Economy Action Plan. And for our listeners who would like to learn a bit more about the textile aspects, we also have an episode on circular fashion where we discuss the part of the circular economy action plan that actually deals with textiles. So I invite you to check this out. 
Frieder, in the Innore Dux project, you actually work with different businesses to help them reduce plastic use. Could you tell us what are the different moments in the retail process where plastic packaging is used? Yes, this project, which was supported by the German Federal Ministry for Research and Education, we had some interesting insights into the retail sector. For example, we as consumers see only sales packaging. So the final packaging, which is offered to us as part of the sale of the product, and we do not see the complete chain. In addition to the sales packaging, there's also a covering box and also the transport packaging, which is used for handling products dealt by the producers, manufacturers, retailers, and so on. So um, we have to consider the whole chain and ask retailers what is their strategy with regard to transport packaging, what they do to avoid this. And so there are different strategies which we could also discuss. I think it's very interesting to understand how much of the packaging waste is actually invisible to consumers. And you pointed out that there are some strategies that could be used uh, by retailers. Could you tell us a bit more about those and maybe explain which of those have the highest potential for impact? In our project, the Innovatux project, we introduced six different ways to more ecological packaging. The first strategy could be to start with zero-waste stores or zero-waste part of sortiment of a retailer. That means avoiding packaging, sales packaging in this case, and to substitute previous packed products by unpacked products. A second strategy could be uh, instead of non-reusable packaging to substitute these packagings by reusable packaging. Third strategy is to apply more efficient materials with regard to packaging of products. That means uh, the strategy is reducing the materials. The fourth strategy is to substitute materials, for example, substituting glass by paper plastics by paper and so on, but also to do it in the other way, depending on the life cycle assessment insights. Fifth strategy is to redesign the product. That means uh, to try to look for solutions which avoid too much material. And the sixth strategy, we call it a service strategy, is to inform the consumers about Card path of disposal of packaging to indicate what is the most, from an ecological point of view, reasonable uh, use of packaging and of products with different packaging. And also another strategy is to be applied in the online retail sector. That means the online retail sector should try to avoid the high number of sandbag products by better describe the products. So these are six different strategies, and of course, all of them make sense, and they should be applied at the place where the decision point is. That means either in the packaging sector or in the manufacturing sector, also in the retail sector. Let's move to another point, the amount of packaging waste that is still increasing. Despite high levels of public awareness, Jean-Pierre, Can you tell us what the relevant factors are in explaining this gap between what we know and what we actually buy in the stores? Yeah, I think it's quite easy to uh, focus on the responsibility of citizens. 
but I think this argument is often used as an excuse by actors who develop different kinds of products to escape responsibility. Let me give you a scenario. If you are in your local store and you want to buy some bananas, you are faced by a choice between some organic bananas wrapped in plastic or some industrial bananas which are sold in bulk with no packaging. Which is the better choice to make? Even with a life cycle assessment like Frida was describing earlier, it would be quite hard to make a choice between the two. And even life cycle assessment, so if you have a team of consultants to choose between the two choices of bananas, it's an imperfect method. You miss many of the important impacts of plastics, notably chemicals. The release into the environment of plastics are not included at all within a life cycle assessment methodology. So it's very hard, actually, not as just a citizen with limited information, but even as a professional with a team of consultants to determine what is the best option in different situations. In addition to this, we have a big issue with greenwashing today. So uh, there was a study from an NGO who we work with a lot in Brussels called ECOS, and they were looking at labeling specifically on plastic products. They looked at 82 products, which they found in supermarkets, and they found that half of the environmental green claims on the packaging of the products related to plastics were either unclear or irrelevant. A quarter of them were unreliable and three quarters of them were a self-made claim by the company, which was not independently verified. And we've seen this kind of data over and over again. So it's not only is it hard to make a choice, even when you have the right information, there is also a lot of misleading information on products as well. And I think that's why we need to use legislation to make the sustainable choice or the best choice in different scenarios, the default choice. And I think this is sort of what is starting to happen in the context of the Green Deal, but there is clearly a long way to go. Jean-Pierre, you already mentioned several times the term biodegradable plastics, and I would like to dive a little bit deeper into that. As an element of the European Green Deal, the European Commission will propose a policy framework on bio-based, biodegradable and compostable plastics at the end of this year. Could biodegradable and compostable plastics be a solution to our plastics problem? The short answer is no, probably not, but it's important to add some details to this. So bioplastics come in different forms with different feedstocks, applications, and environmental performance. It's important to really make a distinction between bio-based plastics. So firstly, these are plastics made from biogenic feedstocks, but they generally have the same properties as conventional plastics. Then there are biodegradable or compostable uh, plastics. We often mix these terms, and these can be based from fossil fuels, so fossil-based feedstocks or biogenic materials. They cannot be recycled or reused, but they have varying levels of biodegradation according to different conditions. So some of them, to degrade completely, need to be put into industrial composting settings. So this means quite a high temperature, so often over 50 degrees, and for several weeks. 
And some of them will compost or degrade in your garden, in your compost pot, and others will degrade in the open environment. A big challenge is that there is a lot of confusion between these different terms. And often when people have products containing either bio-based or biodegradable plastics, it's not clear which one of the two it is. There are also not clear standards. Many products may be labeled as biodegradable, but you might not know under which setting it will completely degrade. So in this kind of context, yes, there are some interesting applications of bioplastics, but I'm not sure that they offer really a solution to the overall plastic waste problem. You have already mentioned the so-called life cycle assessment, so the systematic analysis of the potential environmental impacts of a product. And can you maybe give a general assessment of how bio-based and biodegradable plastic products compare to conventional plastic products? Yeah, so I think bioplastics may or may not have a better a life cycle assessment performance than conventional plastics. It really depends on the specific case. Probably the most promising type of bio-based plastic in terms of having a lower environmental footprint is the one genuinely made from biogenic waste, non-food, like non-edible biogenic waste, such as agricultural uh, residues, which don't have other applications. So this means things from farms, which are not going to be used for something else, could be turned into bio-based plastics. However, most bio-based plastics today are still made from virgin materials, often from food. So it could be from maize or even from wheat. And sometimes they are still blended with conventional fossil-based plastics. Many of the issues with bioplastics are not really addressed in life cycle assessment. It's not part of the methodology. One of these is the misleading aspect, which I already touched on regarding the labeling. The other thing is that mixing biodegradable plastics with normal plastics also disrupts the recycling process because these types of polymers, they break into smaller chains very quickly. And this lowers the quality of other plastics when you are trying to do recycling. And one last thing is that even if biodegradable plastics happen to get into the right type of composting situation, our understanding is that many of them are still disrupting industrial composting facilities. For example, we've spoken to some big waste management companies in Europe and some of the products, notably cutlery, so like knives and forks, which are labeled as biodegradable, never completely biodegrade, even in an industrial setting. So this means that if they enter the marine environment, they're likely to be a, a problematic type of pollution, just like conventional plastics. So we now had an opportunity to think a little bit about what happens with the plastic after it is used. And in this respect, one term that we hear a lot in the plastics debate is microplastics. And Frieder, I wanted to ask you, what is the big deal with microplastics? Why do we hear about them all the time? The big deal is to say because it's a risk. 
more precise. We have the application of microplastic as intended applications, for example, in the cosmetic sector. So it's part of the materials contained in the cosmetic. And the whole picture is that uh, this cosmetic is applied. And of course, it's odd, uh, for example, on the skin. And there's a risk that it accumulates in the bodies of the human beings. The other challenge is that we have a lot of unintended emissions and unintended problems with regard to microplastics linked to different application areas. In the car sector, the car tires are used and during the use, a lot of microplastic is emissioned along the streets and it's washed by rain and then it goes into the open environment, for example, in rivers and so on and finally in the oceans we have emissions in the case of textile washing if we wash for example sport shirts made from plastics polyethylene or other materials during the washing small parts of the textiles microplastics are emissioned and it's hard to really collect them during the cleaning of the wastewater so the emission into Indonesia is the risk and the next step is that it goes into the rivers from the rivers into the ocean in the ocean it's picked up by fishes and it's eaten by human beings and we have the risk of the accumulation of the microplastics into the bodies of ourselves and then we have different toxic non-toxic challenges and I think the whole picture is that this accumulation along with the different chains uh, form the big deal with regards to microplastics. Frieda pointed out two different types of microplastics in his answer, the intentionally added microplastics and the unintentionally released microplastics. And both of these types of microplastics are to be addressed by the EU. And my question to you, Jean-Pierre, would be, which solutions are realistic for these two types of microplastics? Yes, I mean, there's no uh, silver bullet really to addressing microplastics because they are so diverse. Uh, they have diverse sources. They are pervasive and transboundary. I think when trying to address microplastics, the main approaches you could take is addressing and reducing the sources upstream. So really focusing on where they come from originally, not just trying to collect them. Banning really the ones which are intentionally added to products, um, which we know will have a high chance of entering the environment and the marine environment. Labeling and uh, providing information to consumers to try and uh, yeah, nudge their choices towards products which are less likely to produce microplastics and microfibers. Capturing and filtering microfibers and microplastics in different times of uh, waste streams and also monitoring, so generating data on microplastics as well. We have mentioned before that plastics problem has an international dimension, a global dimension. Microplastics is indeed one example of that. And the EU aspires in a way to be a global agenda setter on how to address the growing plastics problem globally. And Jean-Pierre, I wanted to ask you if you believe that the efforts that the EU is making under the European Green Deal sufficient to live up to this aspiration. Yeah, so thinking about the EU's role and its aspirations, I think it's important to check really 
the context and the reality because today even though a lot is happening the eu has the highest levels of packaging waste per capita in its history around 174 kilos per person per year we also continue to export large quantities of plastic waste to developing countries across the world we also have the lowest levels of reuse of materials in the history in Europe as well. In some countries like Germany and Austria, we've seen a move away from high levels of reuse, for example, in the beverage sector of around 80% to less than 20% today. And similarly, when we look at the brand audit from uh, Break Free from Plastic, so this is a global coalition of environmental NGOs working on plastic pollution. Each year through citizen science, citizens across the world collecting plastic on beaches and waterways around the world, they assess what are the main brands or companies who have products packaging on these beaches. And when you look at the top 10 companies on that list, three of them are European companies, Unilever, Nestle and Danone. The rest are all American. So I think we still have a big responsibility in our role in terms of the amount of plastic weights which we see impacting the environment and society around the world. There is a lot to do and it's true we have some quite advanced policies in the EU and a lot is happening at the moment. The EU has also played a major role in pushing the concept of a plastic treaty at the global level in the UN but I don't think we are necessarily yet on the right track. We have reached the last two questions for this interview, which have more of a personal touch. And the first one for Jean-Pierre is, what is your personal relationship to plastics? So how does your knowledge affect your consumer choices? I mean, now I've been working in this area around the topic of plastic for about eight years, and it's definitely influenced my behavior and my consumption habits. It's very difficult for that not to happen. The main thing comes down to packaging consumption. So I actually volunteer in a local zero waste supermarket called Biscoop in Brussels. It's a small shop, but I do most of my groceries there. But I'm also involved in helping the shop. As a, a member, you're also responsible for helping to manage the shop and stock the shelves and things like this. And in this process, I've realized that even for a shop which is really trying to do the best it can, it's very difficult to get away from plastic. So I am not living a completely plastic-free uh, lifestyle, but I have tried to reduce as much as possible buying things in bulk, just drinking tap water, for example, using a bottle everywhere, things which I think many people are already doing today. But I think the main change is just trying to reduce my consumption overall, not just working on plastics, but also I helped to run a campaign on right to repair. And this has kind of encouraged me not just try to reduce my consumption of plastics, but all materials actually. And I think this is the key point. It's not just about plastics. It's about every material, glass, metals, electronics, even travel, things like this. I think this is the real thing that we should be trying to do, but trying to enjoy ourselves at the same time. 
Frieder, beyond personal consumer choices, what would be your advice to someone who would like to make it their career to reduce the negative impact of plastics? What course of study could they follow or what type of job they could try to look for? In general, my recommendation is to be curious. To be curious means look on the left and on the right side of your study and look for things which not on the main track, but which might be of interest dealing with the real world. Look to link your studying with internships, company or an NGO to see what is the theoretical thing you learn and what is the real world practice. This curious attitude makes the most general sense that you're open mind and that you collect passions around the world and around the challenges linked to the big picture we have mentioned today and that you contribute by your impressions and by your practices and also by your theoretical insights into your future career. Thank you. And I hope that the conversation we had today will inspire our listeners to wake up their curiosity and explore the aspects that we talked about, such as addressing environmental issues through transformative action, through collective action, beyond just changing our consumer habits. Jean-Pierre, Frieder, thank you very much for the conversation today. Thank you. Yes, thank you and you're welcome. Nice to have such an opportunity today. Thank you also from my side. Okay, so that was quite an interesting exchange. I think we learned a lot. What are your impressions? First of all, I found it quite interesting that the speakers kept on mentioning different dimensions of the plastics problem. So that really showed the whole scale and the multitude of angles that are related to the plastics issue. They were not only talking about the pollution that I think is on the mind of most people, but also mentioning other dimensions related, for instance, to the whole production of plastics and also the relation to the war in Ukraine, for instance. Yeah, indeed. And I think what is particularly shocking is to understand that plastics, which is something that didn't exist a hundred years ago, it's a very recent invention. In those several decades that it's around, it has been used so much and accumulated in the environment so much that As Jean-Pierre mentioned, the issue of planetary boundaries, it can threaten the very conditions that enable life on Earth. Yeah, I mean, he also highlighted that we as Europeans have a big part to play in the solutions because we also play a big part in the problem. I mean, businesses in Europe are part of the problem, but also we with our consumption. I was quite shocked to hear the number of the packaging waste that we are producing in Europe and that's actually still increasing. Indeed, and I think that given that this is a podcast about the European Green Deal, it is very interesting to understand that this is definitely one of the problems that requires those big systemic transformative solutions that the European Green Deal tries to put forward. And especially what Jean-Pierre mentioned about the fact that if you went to a supermarket, with a team of consultants and try to do a shopping, it would still not be the most obvious for you if you had a team of researchers with you, what is the most environmentally friendly choice? This is something that should be regulated. And 
done in a way for us to make sure that the only choice is a sustainable choice. Mm, I totally agree. And that would be great even for me as a person that has a lot of knowledge on plastics. It's quite complicated to take the right decisions because as we have heard in today's episode, there is no white or black solution often. On the other hand, we have also heard that substitution of different packaging materials is really complicated and that it's really difficult to actually assess which packaging, for instance, is the more sustainable one. So even if we have regulation in place, I think it will be still really complicated to know what the best option would be. And we have also heard about the limitations of the life cycle assessment. So still for the methodology, I think there's a lot to be done to include all the aspects that are relevant for plastics. I also like that both of our speakers did not focus so much on recycling, which is also very often in the public debate, like taking a big part of the whole discussion. But in fact, they were focusing more on the earlier stages in the life cycle of plastics and were telling us about reuse. And I think that is really important because we also have a waste hierarchy in the European Union, which actually puts recycling quite low on the whole scale and things like reuse repair are much higher on this hierarchy the best way would obviously be if we manage to reduce our consumption altogether as Jean-Pierre pointed out in the end indeed so I hope that slowly but surely zero waste stores and repair cafes will not only be something for cool urban hipsters in big European cities but something that will become more accessible and more available to all of us And I hope that we will have the legislative framework that is helping to set up these initiatives. Indeed. So I think we have to combine the law and making those films cool and fashionable and uh, <laughs> try through this to make it a bit more mainstream than it is right now. Let's hope for the best. So that's all for today. I hope that our listeners, after listening to this episode, will have a better understanding of the complex problem that plastic pollution actually is. And I hope that all of you have enjoyed learning with us about the plans that the European Union has to address the problem. In the next month's episode, we'll talk about the question of governance. Or, in other words, who takes decisions about the content of the European Green Deal and who is responsible for making it happen. You can find other episodes of this podcast on all major podcast platforms and apps, including Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and Deezer. Please subscribe to the podcast to find the new episodes in your feed. This podcast is part of the European Environment Initiative, funded by the Federal Ministry for the Environment, Nature Conservation, Nuclear Safety, and Consumer Protection. The Ministry supports this initiative on the basis of a decision adopted by the German Bundestag. Follow us on Instagram at Green Deal Big Deal to find the information about the latest episodes and a lot of interesting infographics about the European Green Deal and environmental problems. The podcast is produced by Karl Lehmann, Eva Ivashruk and Aaron Best. Sound design by Lena Ebley. Graphic and web design by Jennifer Run. Special thanks to Linda Mederake, Benedikt Buep, Lieben Atov, Anna Henze-Henschel, Hikaru Hayakawa, Camila Bausch, Michael Lawrence, Dirte Kemper and Ramiro de la Vega.